Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, a local reaction to the killing of dozens in Gaza. Then, the chairman of the New York State Conservative Party will talk about upcoming elections, including a hotly contested primary in southern Brooklyn. Plus, National Tap Dance Day is coming up. We'll remember one of the greats who has Brooklyn ties. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford, and I'm joined by producer Ross Tuttle. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Ross. How you doing? I'm okay. Are we going to talk about what happened in Gaza yesterday? We are, but where to begin? I mean, I guess with the 62 killed, the more mm. than 2,000 wounded. I gotta say, Ross, you know, I've been told for a really long time that this conflict is more complicated than I understand or that I have um, accurately grasped, and in some parts and places that may be true, but I have to say, uh, a group of unarmed people being killed by a military, mm. to me, does not seem like the kind of values we espouse or the ones that we claim to be fighting for. Or that we should be supporting, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly disproportionately use of force, I, I mean, in that I think it was the, the Israeli um, Defense Forces said that was standard operating procedure, mm -hmm. um, that if they were t attacked, uh, uh, you know, in quotes, um, or felt they were under attack, they should be using live fire, mm -hmm. which I think is crazy. I think people are quibbling about armed, unarmed, you know, and they were, um, and what kinds of um, means these individuals were using to kind of, you know, approach the border, approach the fence, and as um, Israel says, try to get through, and once, if they were to get through, that they were going to then be a threat to Israel, but still, I um, mean, it seems like there'd be a lot of means to try to defuse this. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, we, we should roll back, you know, decades and have defused it, you know, a long time ago. And it's tragic. And of course, everyone is talking today about that split screen with the embassy christening. Um, America sent New York's finest, <laughs> Steve Mnuchin, Jared Kushner, and Ivanka Trump to preen on camera while just I don't know, 60 miles away was uh, carnage. Right, right. Yeah, it's crazy. And then um, somebody who wasn't there was Chuck Schumer, mm -hmm. uh, but he was there in spirit, of course, because mm. he was one who backed this move, praised the move of the embassy to Jerusalem, uh, and then didn't even have time to mention anything about the deaths on his Twitter feed yesterday or today, as far as um, the time of taping, mm -hmm. yet was wishing Melania... Trump, uh, get well soon after your, your kidney surgery. Well, I certainly hope she gets well soon. Ditto. Sounds awesome to have the opportunity to get well. Yes. Just saying. So to talk more about what happened in Gaza yesterday, Monday, and to talk about what the response is going to be here locally, uh, we have, we have uh, Rani Al-Hindi, mm -hmm. who uh, is a co-founder of the Palestine Solidarity Alliance of Hunter College. Uh, he'll talk about a protest that he's planning, hopefully, uh, for Brooklyn um, in the coming days. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Ronnie, thank you for joining us. No problem. Um, thank you for the introduction. Ronnie, over the past month, the Israeli forces have killed over 100 Palestinians since the Great Return March happened. At least 62 Palestinians were killed yesterday. Could you give us some context for this, for this conflict? Since March 30th, which was land day, Palestinians in Gaza have been demonstrating for their fundamental and sacred right to return, which is absolutely guaranteed under international law, under UN General Assembly Resolution 194. And it's repeatedly and consistently affirmed 
governed by international law, and Palestinians are basically demanding this basic right. Gaza also, to give more, to give more context, has been under siege for over uh, 10 years, um, which, you know, is a form of occupation. People might argue the occupation argued it, um, ended in 2005, but actually civilians in Gaza have been describing the siege as even worse than the on-ground occupation that they used to undergo before 2005. As recently as 2014, there were over 2,000 civilians brutally murdered and executed by the Israeli Defense Forces. Um, so Gaza has been for a long time experiencing um, very brutal and harsh conditions. The United Nations have even declared it as uninhabitable by 2020. Uh, just to give you an idea, it's an open-air prison. So. Pretty much what people in Gaza are demanding is the right to have a home, the right to live with dignity and the right to human rights. So when they peacefully protest unarmed, just calling for their own rights, they get responded with a very, very lethal and unbalanced amount of force which is considered to be a war crime under international law. Ronnie, what is your response? You know, when people are talking about whether it was peaceful, whether it was um, armed, unarmed, but what is your response to those who say that Israel does have a right to defend itself and that this was a mob um, that was mobilized by Hamas intent on harming Israelis? Well, it's pretty clear, I mean, from the pictures, from the videos, from the own stories that the civilians are telling us that there has been no violence by, by Palestinians. And even under the Geneva Convention and under international law, when, let's say, someone throws a Molotov on to the other side of the border, which is a very disproportionate amount of force, you know, compared to shooting people and bombing them, um, it's very disproportionate, and it's a very isolated incident that doesn't end, end up happening much. So what the Israeli military ends, ends up doing is a form of collective punishment, which is also illegal, and um, thousands of Palestinians end up being affected by, by this policy. Um, so if we're going to talk about what Palestinians have been using, let's, let's talk about the guides that were, that were flown signaling their own intention for, for peace and for harmony. The balloons that were being flown up in the sky in Gaza yesterday, the journalists who were murdered by, by Palestine, by the Israeli Defense Forces, um, the eight-month-year-old baby, uh, there, there is no ex excuse for such, for such murders. Um, you know, people can mention Hamas, people can mention... Um, uh, terrorist groups, but it's, it becomes very irrelevant when we're talking about thousands of civilians that have no association with Hamas that have been executed, and they should be our, our focus, because no, no civilian should be targeted in that way. Ronnie, let me ask you, how does the relocation of the U.S. Embassy play into all of this? Well, the latest move is just in another act of support for crimes that have been committed by the Israeli the, the Israeli army. The, the U.S. is re, reaffirming and um, strongly asserting its own support for the Israeli government's policies. To give more and more context, West Jerusalem is also occupied Palestinian territory. My, my grandmother actually uh, comes from 
an area that is considered to be part of West Jerusalem, and she hasn't been able to return back to her village since 1947, actually. And a lot of Palestinians have been ethnically cleansed from West Jerusalem, too, and the same continues nowadays in East Jerusalem. So Jerusalem plays a significant role in the Palestinian struggle, and one of the major pillars to the Palestine-Israel conflict is the displacement and the refugee issue, which, as I as I mentioned earlier, the, the U.S. is giving a, a green light to the Israeli government to continue the land grabbing and ethnic cleansing. And so, Ronnie, if you could just tell us about the, the rally that you're planning uh, for the weekend, although it may get rained out, so you may have to reschedule. We have been discussing a plan to organize a protest at Grand Marshall in front of the farmers' market this Saturday, um, followed by a protest to Chuck Schumer's house. We have seen the weather, and given that there's a high chance it will rain, we probably will not go in accordance with this plan anymore. And we're still in discussion about alternative plans we might do, including the idea of having an indoor event this time. And the uh, the event is co-sponsored by my group, the Palestine Solidarity Alliance of Hunter College, uh, the Apartheid Divest Campaign at CUNY, Jewish Voice for Peace, which is a large solidarity Jewish-based organization, um, NYU Students for Justice in Palestine, NYU Jewish Voice for Peace, Adela New York, the Campaign to Boycott Israel, and Queers Against Israeli Apartheid. And Ronnie, where can people go to stay up to date with the latest plans uh, for, the, for the rally, for the protest? It's all available online. They can go to either of the group's pages. You can also go to my group's page, that's the Palestine Solidarity Alliance of Hunter College. Every event we're either endorsing or co-sponsoring is listed there, and we continuously update our members and supporters. Ronnie, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you being able to let us know what's going on in Gaza, um, explaining some of that to us, and also letting us know what work you're doing right here in New York. Thank you for taking your time to interview me. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Coming up, Jarrett's conversation with Conservative Party Chairman Michael Long. New York State is known as blue country, but barely half the state's 12.4 million registered voters are Democrats. A couple million voters belong to no party at all. Nearly half a million are registered members of the Independence Party, although probably many of them just wanted to be independent of any label. Then there's the Conservative Party, with 155,000 members statewide and about 20,000 here in the city, which is small, but in a year when an actress is running for governor and the ex-attorney general is running for cover, who knows what factors will be decisive in campaign 2018. Joining us today, hailing from Brooklyn, is Michael Long, the chairman of the Conservative Party of New York State. Welcome, Chairman Long. Thanks for being good to, here. Good to be with you. Tell us, viewers who are uninitiated, a little bit about the Conservative Party. Where does it come from? What's it about? Well, we were formed back in 1962, um, when, and the reason we were formed, there was a Liberal Party at that time in New York State, and the Liberal Party had a pretty good hold on both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. One would think they had the hold on the Democratic Party only, but if you think back to the 60s, you had John Lindsay, you had Jake Javits, Nelson Rockefeller, so the Liberal Party played a very big influence. Louis Lefkowitz, the attorney general. So they would pick—and uh, they were dragging the Republican Party to the left. Uh, 
And they were dragging a lot of Democrats to the left at the time. So we, we were born in 1962. Um, we achieved the ballot status that year, the first year that we were involved. Uh, ran a, a businessman from upstate, and he got 136,000 votes, which established us. You need 50,000 votes to establish yourself as a party. Uh, and, and four years later, uh, Professor Adams ran for governor against uh, Nelson Rockefeller. He got over half a million votes. And we not only would now establish ourselves as a real bona fide party, but uh, he moved us to row C. Uh, so your, your ballot position is designated on, by the amount of votes you and get. The votes you get, right? Right. So we we, hit, we took Rosie, uh, Bill Buckley, um, William F. Buckley ran for mayor against John Lindsay. Uh, I think that really put the conservative party on the map. He got over um, pretty close to four hundred thousand votes, three hundred and some odd thousand, three hundred sixty some odd thousand votes uh, for mayor. Uh, his brother then ran in 68 and got over one million votes, Jim Buckley, mm -hmm. uh, and for the United States Senate. In 1970, he ran again for the United States Senate. He didn't want it, but we sort of uh, sort of walked him into it, including his brother, and he wound up winning. He got over two million votes. And you mentioned those are the days when one heard a lot about liberal Republicans. Um, nowadays, the, the Republican Party is seen, I think, by, by most observers as being more conservative than Correct. that. So what's the role of the conservative party in New York State and in New York City today? I mean, do you mainly endorse Republicans? Uh, in, when the, in the early days of the party, we endorsed a lot of Democrats. There were, um, I guess you could call them blue door Democrats. Many of them were very conservative. But the Democratic Party has moved away from uh, any centrist position. And our job as a party is uh, clearly to—we uh, we do endorse a few Democrats upstate. Uh, but for the most part, we—I uh, guess you could say—we uh, the truth and packaging for the Republican Party. We keep them in—I'd uh, like to say—we keep them on the, the the right road. So let's talk about some of the races that are coming up this year. Uh, first of all, in Staten Island, you have the congressional primary. Michael and Southern Brooklyn, too, I should mention. Michael Grimm and uh, the incumbent uh, Dan Donovan. What do you think about that race? Well, we've endorsed Dan Donovan. Dan had an, an outstanding career as a DA. Um, I've known him for a lot of years. I know Michael Grimm, too. Uh, but Michael Grimm has had done a lot of tripping in his political career, to say the least. And I think, ultimately, right now, a lot of people are talking about Grimm is coming on strong, and he's going to take that. I, I ultimately believe the people are going to do the right thing at the end, uh, next month, at the primary, and Donovan will survive. What do you think? Uh, why do you think that's the right thing exactly? Well, look, I think Michael Grimm he uh, betrayed his office. I'm not saying that anyone else never did what he did. I think he got a raw deal. I think he's one of the only people I ever know that went to prison for what he did. Uh, usually, people got a fine, but he really, uh, whether he brought it on himself or not, he he wound up being sent to prison for. Uh, uh, for tax evasion, and most people get—I don't know of anyone got went to prison for tax evasion, okay, uh, in the political process, okay, in, in modern days. Uh, but he served eight months, um, and he lied to the what? Why he shouldn't run again? It's not necessarily because of his uh, missteps on tax evasion, 
Uh, he lied to the constituent. At the time, during the race, when he was running, he kept saying he was innocent, um, and he won the election after being indicted, and then right after the election, he pleaded guilty to everything and then went to jail. So he betrayed the, the voters of the district, in all honesty. Uh, one feature of that race is uh, the Republicans competing for who or, or talking about how they view the president. Um, what do you feel about President Trump? And is he, is he a true conservative? Uh, he's a guy who is a trade protectionist. The budget he signs spends a lot of money. His lawyer paid off, apparently, a pornographic movie star. Are those traditional conservative values? Are they in line with, with your approach? Look, there's no question about it that Donald Trump's a populist. Uh, and possesses a lot of conservative views. Um, and, matter of fact, many of the things he's accomplishing, um, the conservative movement endorses clearly, uh, whether it's him put getting uh, Kim at the table in North Korea, whether he—you know, most people were pretty scared about when Trump kept saying, pushing the button, that uh, he's going to bring him to the table. And he brought him to the table. And we— um, ripping up the Iran deal, I think that's an important thing. Bringing Jerusalem as the, you know, as the capital of um, um, Israel, okay? I think he, I think he's done a lot. Of, and then his tax cut program clearly is uh, very conservative. Um, the appointment of a good conservative Supreme Court judge. So. I am more than pleasantly surprised uh, of, of what he's accomplished as president of the United States and support his policies. I don't always support everything he says or everything he has uh, claimed to have done. Um, and um, clearly, I don't think he's a movement conservative. He never was. But he certainly is governing as a conservative. And uh, he's been a populist his whole life. A right-wing populist, conservative populist. I guess conservative-minded populist. But he danced with the Democrats uh, as a businessman. Of course, he needed to do that as a businessman in the state of New York. So but, speaking of New York, uh, here politics has been turned upside down by the past couple of weeks by the resignation of Attorney General Schneiderman. There's a question now about what should be happening in that—with that vacancy. Some debate about whether it's appropriate to appoint an interim AG or not. What do you want to see happen? There? I think the Constitution says it's appropriate to appoint uh, an interim. Uh, the governor and the legislature has a right to appoint uh, to fill out the term. Um, all the other nonsense that you hear in the press and, and from the various elected officials, the people should decide. Um, the bottom line is the Constitution says very clearly appoint someone to finish the term. Uh, conventions are right around the corner. That's what makes it a little uncomfortable for someone to, to do that, for the Assembly to do that and the Senate to do that and the governor to sign off on it. So you, you have an acting attorney general there. I see no, nothing wrong with appointing that acting attorney general. It doesn't appear that she wants to run for uh, a, a, a full term. Okay, right. uh, and then let the political process work out. Let the Democrats uh, have their primary of the, the 44 people that want to run for attorney general, and then let the Republicans, conservatives, select the candidate for AG, and let the voters decide then in November. In November, uh, you'll have most likely Marcus Molinaro as the GOP nominee, and he will have conservative party backing too, I believe. Is that is that That's true? That's correct. And does he have a chance against Governor Cuomo? I, I, look, I think— um, 
When you look at the amount of corruption that has taken place in the state of New York, uh, we just got done talking about the AG. We just all you have to do is look at the governor's closest aide. As a matter of fact, uh, the family called him the third son. Uh, the indictment of his third of of his closest aide. Uh, other pending indictments coming down. Um, uh, the Buffalo billion. Um, I think the governor has some problems, and he certainly has not shown the temperament of good leadership. Um, you take uh, Cynthia Nixon has um, really uh, made a track star out of him, running to the left. Anything she says, whatever she does, she holds a press conference, he immediately um, keeps moving to the left instead of governing. Um, when he lost the working—you know, he possessed the working family party endorsement. Uh, but he ran, ran the last two times. Uh, the last time, the mayor had to bail him out to get him the endorsement. And his actions last year during the mayor's race—I don't agree with Bill de Blasio. I don't agree with Andrew Cuomo. But there's no need for the governor of the state of New York to uh, actually slap the mayor around one whole year during the election. He purposely did everything he could, to, uh, everything he could do to hurt the mayor. It was uncalled for. The governor shouldn't act that way. Then, when the Working Family Party announces that they decide not to support him, he starts telling people, rip up my phone number, don't call me anymore. He starts punishing those people that are, uh, voted against him, making it very clear and playing, um, I guess, rough-style politics. Instead of being the governor of the state of New York and saying, look, they're a minor party. They selected Cynthia Nixon, an actress. That's fine. I'm the governor of the state of New York. I'm going to run for re-election on the Democratic line. I'm going to win this election. So let me ask you, about 45 seconds left. As I mentioned, 20,000 or so registered conservatives in Brooklyn and suburb of a couple million people. I imagine it must feel a little lonely sometimes. For <laughs> a conservative here, what do you think is the top issue facing the city and state? Well, clearly— the high taxes and the amount of money that's being spent. We cannot continue to sustain down the road. My children, my grandchildren are not going to be able to live in this city if we keep spending and taxing at the rate we do. Conservative Party Chairman for New York State, Michael Long, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. In a moment, tap dancing. Bill Bojangles Robinson. If you don't know the man, you surely know the name Bojangles. Not to be confused with Mr. Bojangles from the song, who was inspired by Bill Robinson, tap dancer extraordinaire, who just so happens to be buried in Bushwick's Evergreen Cemetery. May 25th is the anniversary of his birth in 1878, and rightfully, it's also National Tap Dance Day. In commemoration, BK Dance Festival, the Schomburg Center, and Alvin Ailey Studios are organizing a weekend of tap and jazz. We just saw one of the performers who, one of the performers who will be there, Derek Grant. Great job. We're also joined by Tamia Santana, producer of the Tap Family Reunion. Thanks for coming on the show. And tap dancer Jason Samuel Smith. Welcome to 112BK. 
Tamia, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell me a little bit about the Tap Dance Weekend and the programming that you guys are planning for that? Yes, it's an amazing weekend that we have planned. The first thing I want to start out by saying is that I'm also co-producing it with Elka Samuel-Smith, who's mm -hmm. not here today, but um, we've been working really hard to make this a great event. We love and honor and think that our artistic directors are amazing, which mm -hmm. is Jason Samuel Smith, Dormisha Sumphrey Edwards, who's not here today, and Derek Grant. Mm -hmm. um, they had this vision of really holding true to what the national black art form of tap dance is and carrying on the legacy and the history. And we really wanted to see that vision come true. So we have a lot of amazing things um, for the weekend. On Thursday, we have Bill Bojangles Robinson his archives that we're unveiling at the Schomburg Center at 1 p.m., so we look forward to seeing everyone there. Mm -hmm. On Friday, we have a free performance that's open to the public, where artistic directors are also artistic directing the show. Mm -hmm. And we have a performance celebrating and having birthday and champagne and really celebrating who Bill Bojangles was, um, dressed to impress, so make sure that you come correct if you're gonna come, but we'd love to see you. On Saturday at Alvin Ailey Studios, we have all-day um, tap workshops, and we have from basic beginner, if you've never tapped before, all the way up to advanced, we are really committed and here to having as many people share this wealth of information and the education about tap that these amazing directors can provide. Mm -hmm. They have some um, fun events, like a family a family tap feud, so we're mm -hmm. going to talk about some history and make it fun for people to learn, and then a cutting contest that they might be able to talk a little bit more about. We have a tap con, mm -hmm. um, selling memorabilia, people trading things, just talking about tap, people coming together to really celebrate this art form. And then on Sunday, we end um, at Swing 46 with a tap jam. That sounds amazing. Do you know Elka Samuel Smith? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of her, you know. Yeah, I was just yeah. wondering. The name sounded, <laughs> and then little, I just wondered, yeah. That's my sister and also my manager. But we've, we've been working together. Actually, my sister started tap dancing before me, so mm -hmm. I give a lot of credit for everything I'm doing to my sister. So, And she's, she's done a lot of work to help us with this event. And were you also inspired by Mr. Smith? Uh, well, Mr. Robinson. Mr. Robinson. Look at that. You better be inspired by Mr. Smith. <laughs> well, his Mr. Dad is a yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say, Mr. Smith. Yeah, no, Mr. Robinson has been one of the the, the cornerstones of our art form. You mm -hmm. know, uh, some of the earliest footage I can remember seeing of tap dance was of him. Um, you know, and he's known for a lot of things in, in our art form. I mean. He gets credit for the chair dance, not, not the chair dance, the stair dance. Yes. He uh, does a very famous stair dance. Um, his tap shoes had wooden soles instead mm -hmm. of the metal taps that we use today, so they produced a very unique wow. sound. His style was very, you know, clear and crisp. Um, he didn't syncopate a lot of his rhythms, so mm -hmm. the, the, the rhythms were more military-like. Um, you know, but he was also a pioneer. I mean, he was yes. one of the first performers in vaudeville to not wear blackface. Mm -hmm. um, one of the first performers to not perform with a partner. I believe there was a two-man rule where each black performer had to perform with a partner. So mm -hmm. he was the first soloist um, to perform. Wow. Headline on a major vaudeville show with other white performers. Um, you know, he was the first to do a lot. And, and so a lot of people, I think, criticize him for maybe... Um, his art artistic offerings, because mm -hmm. a lot of people think that he was cooning or, you know, 
just bringing our culture down right. when, in fact, he was trying to represent us on the highest plateau, mm -hmm. and he opened a lot of doors for us. And we're trying to celebrate those contributions mm -hmm. and the fact that he was a New Yorker. Mm -hmm. You know, he was known as the mayor of Harlem. Right. You know what I mean? So people in the neighborhood knew him. You know, he'd walk around, he knew everybody. So we want to bring the identity of tap dance back to New York City, make sure New Yorkers celebrate this art form and celebrate mm -hmm. this culture and know that it's theirs. You know, these yes. things, a, lot, a lot of these things that we're celebrating, these people, they were here right. in New York. They were residents here. You know, one of the things that we're doing on Sunday is a scavenger hunt. Mm -hmm. But it's really, um, it's to acknowledge monuments that we have in tap culture in New York City, pre-existing. So an opportunity to learn. Yeah. And really appreciate what has already been here for us to appreciate. And celebrate so, while learning. And celebrate while learning. I mm -hmm. love that. Derek, can you tell me really quickly, aside from his birthday, mm -hmm. aside from National Tap Dance Day, what's another reason it's so important for us to remember Mr. Robinson? Well, to stay connected. It's mm -hmm. the legacy. And he set the bar. You yes. know, as far as I'm concerned, everything that we do from this point on, has to meet a certain level of excellence, mm -hmm. and that all starts with Bill Robinson. How do people get tickets to come see the shows? Type in TAP Family Reunion NYC. Fantastic. Here's what's on the show tomorrow. LGBTQ seniors will talk about the Griot Circle, plus an upcoming event at Brick House, Freedom Dreaming, A Call to Imagine. I'll let you imagine what that's about. But check it out tomorrow and see if you were right. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barghi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>